This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. Could your designer dupes be fueling terrorism? Sorry, big question, I know. But it's what experts are saying might be happening. It's probably not what you're thinking is happening when you're buying something cute online, when you see a bit of a bargain overseas, you think, oh, looks exactly like the real thing, it's cheap. It's not the real thing. And what is the real cost of it? We're going to be getting into this investigation on fake fashion later. It's so interesting because experts are saying it's funding everything from human trafficking to terrorism. Also coming up, we're going to talk about the so-called traitor politician scandal that's blowing up in Canberra. We're explaining what's going on with that. First, though. Hack. It's very normal to be doing, like, drugs within the scene. On Triple Jack. Do you reckon you drink more or less since the pandemic? Because for a while now, the stats have spelled out a picture of young Australians kind of moving away from alcohol and drugs until now. The latest research is out and the findings on young Aussies have surprised a lot of researchers because it's found young women are drinking at riskier levels and using more illicit drugs than ever before. But we don't know why. What do you think it is? Message in 0439757555. Maybe this resonates with you. You think that's me? Definitely in the last few years, I'm drinking more, doing more drugs. Shalala Madora has some more of the research. I've done drugs before that, but moving down to Melbourne really opened my world to, I guess, drugs and opened myself to like a community that was accepting of drugs where there's like a no judgment space. This is someone we'll call Mia. She started experimenting with drugs when she was about 19. Ketamine was like this new thing. So I started experimenting with that, went pretty hard with the K. And I still use K now, I really like it. I still do MDMA now as well. Mia's part of the techno and electronic music scene, a space she says is really open about drug usage. Probably do those things every weekend. Um, I feel like I've found a good balance on what's healthy for my body. And then obviously I experiment with like other drugs as well, like acid or coke and stuff like that. There are heaps of reasons Mia uses drugs. I prefer to maybe not get drunk and do something else. Um, It is a lot cheaper as well to buy something for 20 bucks and to spend like $150 on alcohol in the night. Mia's experience is reflective of a broader trend we're seeing in society and experts are alarmed. One of the both interesting and concerning things was that young women tend to be using um, illicit drugs and drinking at risky levels in a way that's um, aligned with their male peers. Robert Taylor is from the Australian Drug Foundation and he's talking about the findings of this year's National Drug Strategy Household Survey. One of the most surprising findings from the survey was that women aged 18 to 24 are drinking and taking drugs more than ever before. Traditionally, this hasn't been the case. There's been a bit of a gap where young men have tended to use illicit drugs and drink in risky ways more so than their female counterparts. According to the survey, around one in three young people has used illicit drugs in the last 12 months. And so the most common drug is cannabis. Um, After that, it's cocaine. Young women are also narrowing the gap when it comes to binge drinking, with two out of five women drinking outside of recommended levels. 
Robert says there isn't much research into why young women use illicit drugs. We have seen that change. We're not really sure what's driving that. We have a bit more of a sense of why women are drinking more. There are companies who've been going after particular markets and segments, and one of those is young women. And that's what we're starting to see in the data now when it comes to drinking and harms. Katerina Georgie from the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education says a lot of products targeting women claim to be more healthy than other alcohol drinks. Less calories and there's less sugar and you know there are even products that say that they're collagen infused. It's not just young women whose drinking is causing concern. Alcohol is still the drug of choice for most Australians with 77% of us saying we'd had a drink in the last 12 months. Unfortunately risky drinking and harm from alcohol continues to be at unacceptable levels across the board in the Australian community. Alcohol-related deaths are at a 10-year high and more people are saying they've been harmed by other people's drinking. Katerina says before COVID, we'd been making inroads into reducing our alcohol consumption as a nation. What COVID has done is it's it's at best stopped those really great gains that we're seeing and stabilised what we're seeing in risky drinking among some population groups. But at worst, particularly among young women, we're seeing some indicators that things are getting worse. While the survey shows more drug use, it also shows that Australians are more supportive of harm reduction policies like pill testing and safe injecting rooms. More Australians support these policies than oppose them. These are evidence-based measures that can save lives and prevent unnecessary deaths. So we're really pleased to see that. Changes in acceptability around women socialising what's typically more masculine way. Isabel Volpe is doing her PhD at the Uni of New South Wales. She says drug policies tend to focus on drug users as masculine and rowdy, but the new data shows that's not the case. Isabel hopes the findings of the drug survey will mean more research into this issue. The huge benefit of us investing so much in the National Drug Strategy Household Survey, having these huge data sets a point towards emerging trends that are now and of the moment is us being able to see that drug use isn't just one thing that happens by one kind of person in one sort of space. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. And yeah, interested to hear what you think is behind this bump in young women drinking, doing more drugs. Someone says, definitely the drinking culture at uni has caused me to drink more in a single evening. Another person says, more young people are keen to take drugs and escape because of reality. Impending global war, unaffordable housing to both rent and to buy. That's the reason. A lot of people saying that on Instagram as well. Hacks Instagram, uh, lots of people joining the conversation there. I want to break down these stats a bit more now with Dr. Amy Panay, a senior research fellow at the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University. Hey, Amy, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Hi, nice to talk to you. Is there anything in this research that surprises you at all? There are some increases, some slight increases in drinking um, that we're seeing amongst young people after periods of declines, uh, which is slightly interesting. Um, And we're also noticing significant increases in vaping, which again, I'm not surprised by, but as a public health researcher, something we should be a bit worried about. In terms of the drinking, why do you think it is that we're seeing women catch up to men now? Like what could be some of the reasons behind that? Yeah, well, I would only be speculating, but what we're seeing is men have always consumed alcohol at higher levels and experienced more problems from alcohol than women. And so what I think is happening here could be that women are catching up. We're seeing, um, you know, greater 
um, improvements in gender equality, um, meaning that women have as many opportunities to do the same sorts of things as men. So I think men had a higher starting point and women have just been slowly catching up over time. Okay. Across the board, are young people generally drinking less and doing fewer drugs than they were like a decade ago? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the declines in drinking and drug use for young people started around 2005 in Australia and they have been steadily declining ever since. So this is the very first time we've seen a, a stabilisation and even a slight uptick in these levels. And, and that often happens with ebbs and flows in consumption. Things can't go down forever. There has to be a point at which they turn. And I wouldn't be surprised if the pandemic has something to do with this, this stabilisation or uptick. I was going to ask about that. How have habits changed since the pandemic? I think the really interesting thing about this data, and it's the best data we have in Australia, is that the, the last survey was 2019, which was pre-COVID. And this is the first time we've seen really what's happened post-COVID. Um, and it looks like young people are maybe enjoying getting back out there and, and socialising. But there are also some, there is also some evidence that mental health problems particularly internalising problems like depression and anxiety are increasing for young people, especially women. So I'm hoping that the uptick we're seeing isn't related to those sorts of issues. Yeah, okay. There's, and like you say, it's all pretty much speculation. We don't know what could be causing these numbers really. Uh, are the results similar to what is being found in other parts of the world, what we're seeing here in Australia? Yes, it is actually. Um, I've got some international colleagues and we've been talking about this recently. What seems to be happening overseas is that boys drinking continues to decline but young women's or girls drinking is stabilising or slightly increasing um, so it seems to be matching what we're finding here. Another interesting thing Amy was the survey finding rates of risky behaviour falling for young men but increasing for young women. Do you have any thoughts on that? It is really interesting. I, th I think it could go back to that idea about uh, women having more freedom to um, you know, pursue uh, lifestyles that perhaps traditionally they weren't able to. But I also wonder if there might be something going on with um, gender norms for men as well, where um, being risky and drinking heavily don't seem to be ways um, of performing masculinity in ways that perhaps it used to be. If we've still got so many questions, you know, even after these numbers, do you think it is important that we do have more research into why these things are happening? What do we need to be seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, qualitative research, talking to young people is really important because that's where we get the really rich detail. So these surveys are wonderful because they give us a really good indication of what's happening. But we, we also need to dig deep, deeper and talk to people about, you know, their social experiences because we could just be guessing at this point. Well, it's interesting stuff. We appreciate you coming on and explaining it. Dr. Amy Penney from uh, the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack. The question in the corridors of Parliament House today is who is the former politician? On Triple J. Yeah, a lot going down in Canberra at the moment. You know, we throw the word traitor around a lot. Could be a colleague who didn't pick you up a drink when they went to the bar, a mate who's still friends with your ex, maybe. It's a very loaded, dramatic term. You're a traitor, you're a traitor. Treason, that word, something that probably reminds you of Game of Thrones or anything a bit medieval. Thing is, though, these words might be pretty relevant to politics in Australia today because this scandal is blowing up in Canberra with the huge news coming out that a former politician here in Australia was recruited by an international spy ring. It is wild. So what do we know? Angel Parsons has more. 
Who of our current and former colleagues can we trust? This is a pretty extraordinary extreme case. The former politician is a traitor. Anybody who works with foreign agents of influence to pass on information is a traitor. Fired up takes from some people in politics reeling from a bit of a bombshell dropped by the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO. Australians need to know the threat is real, the threat is now, and the threat is deeper and broader than you might think. ASIO's boss is Mike Burgess, and that was him talking last night about the threat of foreign interference and influence. Every year, the organisation delivers an annual threat assessment. This year's came with a big revelation. Several years ago, a former Australian politician had been recruited by international spies. This politician sold out their country, party, former colleagues. At one point, the former politician even proposed bringing a Prime Minister's family member into the spy's orbit. Fortunately, that plot did not go ahead, but others did. The million-dollar question on everyone's minds, who is it and what consequences might they face? It is absolutely inconceivable that you would have a former politician representing their community, representing the country, who then goes and engages with a foreign adversary and somehow they're allowed to walk off into the sunset without having their name or their reputation revealed. Joe Hockey used to be Australia's federal treasurer under Tony Abbott and later he was our ambassador to the United States and he really wants this former politician to be named. It makes us all question as representatives in the parliament who we can trust. What do you make of what we heard last night from Mike Burgess? Well, I think this is old-fashioned espionage. Also calling for the former politician to be named is Michael Shoebridge, the Director of Strategic Analysis Australia. I think there's a strong public interest. It brings every former politician into disrepute. He wants the whole thing taken up by political and justice systems. This is a pretty extraordinary extreme case. By the way, the ASIO boss, Mike Burgess, says the threat posed by this particular former politician had been neutralised. Personally, I don't think they'll be stupid enough to repeat what they've done in the past. While some are worried this erodes the public's trust in all politicians until the so-called traitor is revealed, like opposition leader Peter Dutton. I I think it is unfair on a lot of former MPs. There's a school of thought among others that naming the culprit is a bit beside the point. I think there's a whole range of reasons why individuals would not be named. This is Defence Minister Richard Miles. I respect the decision that ASIO have made in relation to this. Likewise, Liberal Senator James Patterson, who's also the Shadow Home Affairs Minister. I won't be publicly speculating about that. That wouldn't be appropriate. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. Every politician is a target. What he's referencing there is a warning from ASIO that politicians, everyone really, needs to be aware of just how big a risk foreign interference is, referring to a known group of spies from an unnamed country called the A-Team. We've seen it try to recruit students, academics, politicians. We all have to do a better job of protecting ourselves. This is Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill, and she says this is all about making people more aware and vigilant. Our government says this is the most dangerous geostrategic circumstances Australia has faced since the Second World War, and a very large part of that is foreign governments trying to infiltrate our society here in Australia. 
So if this is such a big issue, I wanted to know more about it. Sarah Kendall researches national security law at the University of Queensland. So espionage refers to the theft of certain types of information by someone uh, working on behalf of a foreign principal. Foreign interference is all about covertly shaping decision making to the advantage of the foreign power. And while there's no criminal offence of traitor here in Australia, the law has covered espionage for more than 100 years. We didn't really have any offences in the Crimes Act or Criminal Code for foreign interference until uh, those reforms in 2018. There's probably only been a handful of prosecutions for espionage and foreign interference in sort of Australia's history. If someone is convicted of espionage or foreign interference, what do the maximum penalties look like there, do you know? Maximum penalties will range anywhere from 10 years in prison to life in prison. Australia and other nations will be closely watching to see what happens here, whether there'll be any criminal charges laid or if the story just serves as a cautionary tale. And I think Mike Burgess has taken this opportunity to really publicise what has happened in the past so that we are all aware that it is a very real threat and that it is happening. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update and we'll keep you across any big developments if we hear who it is, what's happened, because everyone's got an opinion on this one in Canberra at the moment. So we'll definitely make sure you're across this story. All right, time to move on. Hack. Former Northern Territory Police Constable Zachary Rolfe has been forced to answer questions about the night he fatally shot an Indigenous man. On Triple J. Yeah, the name Zachary Rolfe is one we've heard a lot over the past few years. He's the former Northern Territory police officer who fatally shot 19-year-old Walpree man Kumanjai Walker in 2019 while trying to arrest him. It was big news at the time and led to a lot of protests from people within the community of Yundamu and around the country. Zachary Rolfe was found not guilty in 2022 of charges of murder and manslaughter relating to Kumanjai Walker's death. So he was acquitted of all the charges. Now a coronial inquest into the death is underway in the Northern Territory and it's been going on for about a year and a half and Zachary Rolfe himself has been giving evidence this week. So what's he said? Well, ABC reporter Melissa McKay is covering this inquest in the NT. She's with us now. G'day Mel, thanks for coming on. Anytime. Firstly, can you explain what this inquest is? Because just to be clear, it's not a criminal trial. That's already happened, right? Yeah, so this is um, a mandatory coronial inquest in the Northern Territory. Any death in custody must be subject to a public inquiry such as this. Uh, So Zachary Rolfe, as we know, was charged with murder. He was acquitted back in March of 2022. And then in September of 2022 began what was originally thought to be a three-month-long coronial inquest, which is a very long inquest in and of itself. But there have since been a series of legal arguments, appeals. Mr Rolfe filed um, a recusal application asking the coroner to stand aside last year. So it's kind of all stretched out uh, to almost 18 months now that we've been hearing evidence about what happened on the night that Kumanjai Walker was shot, but also more broadly about 
the culture of the Northern Territory Police Force, uh, poverty in Yundamu, where Mr Walker was from. Uh, it's really, really broad-ranging, uh, the coroner's inquiry. So, Zachary Rolfe's been giving evidence himself this week. What have we heard so far? Uh, it has been a very big week of evidence from Zachary Rolfe. We started on Monday with allegations of widespread racism and, and use of racist language, I should say, in the Northern Territory Police Force. He told the coroner that using racial slurs was normalised within the police force. You know, he told some stories about there being, you know, a so-called Aboriginal-only section of a pub here in Alice Springs that was collectively referred to by police as the Animal Bar because it was an Aboriginal-only bar. Um, he said that that was so widely used that it was even used over the police radio. He's also made some quite serious allegations of the use of racist language by the elite tactical response team, which is based in Darwin. Those... Uh, allegations have since been uh, refuted by the police force and by some of those TRG members who have given statements to the court today. But we've we've sort of been moving chronologically, I suppose, in um, Zachary Rolfe's policing career over the last few days. We've also seen body-worn footage of other use of force incidents that Mr Rolfe was involved in throughout his career in Alice Springs. And since yesterday and into today, we've started hearing evidence about the, the actual night that Kumanjai Walker uh, was shot in November of 2019. So what happens after this smell? Uh, like after this week's over, what can we expect then? So Zachary Rolfe is scheduled to be the last... Uh, witness of this inquest. So theoretically, come Friday afternoon or tomorrow afternoon, we are we are finished hearing evidence in this inquest. So we've heard from um, somewhere between 70 and 80 people over the last few months in this inquiry. Once uh, Zachary Roll finishes, um, all the parties will go away for a little while. They'll come back in May and June for two weeks of uh, what's called final submissions, where essentially all of the parties tell the coroner what they would like for her to find in her findings and recommendations. And then a few months after that, however long it takes the coroner to go through this massive brief of evidence, she will write up her findings and recommendations and then hand that final report. Uh, it's made public and, and handed to government and, and agencies. I imagine this has all had a huge impact on the community. Can you explain how it's been felt? And, you know, like has Kumandrai Walker's family uh, been hearing all of this evidence? Have they been present? Yeah, they have. There's um, a sort of support tent almost set up across the road from the Alice Springs local court on um, the grasses over there where members of the community have been gathering every single day of this inquest and there's been almost 60 of them that they have sat and um, some have come into court and listened to the evidence there. Others have watched uh, on the live stream from the grass and others are gathered with, with family and, and community and getting daily updates from their lawyers. Every lunch break and after court every day, you can see the lawyers for the families heading over to what's called the Yapa Support Camp. And I think even more broadly across the Northern Territory, this uh, this incident has been felt. It's also, you know, had massive ripple effects within the police force. We've seen even this week, these allegations of widespread racism have really affected a lot of members and a lot of members of the Northern Territory community. Well, look, we do appreciate you keeping across it and for filling us in. ABC reporter Melissa McKay, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Anytime. Thanks, Dave. 
Hack. This is Real versus Super Fake Van Cleef Alhambra Edition. On Triple J. Yeah, it's always a bit strange when you see a mate wearing something looking really expensive. One of the big brands. Gucci, Dolce & Gabbana, Louis Vuitton. And you think there's no way that's real. And nobody wants to talk too much about it. They just pretend it's not a thing. But the fake fashion industry is massive. And you're feeling more pressure than ever to fork out for the stuff when you see it because trends are moving quickly, influencers are showing off their latest looks. You might think, oh, it's not really harming anyone what I'm doing, buying this, you know, bag, these shoes. But experts say fake fashion is really caught up with organised crime and it's funding stuff like human trafficking and terrorism. The ABC's foreign correspondent program has been looking into this and reporter Naomi Silver-Rutnam headed to the UK to find out just how big this industry is. But I want to know if you can tell the difference between these two. <laughs> so which ones do you think are real products and which ones do you think are fake? OK, so they're both heavy. I'm standing in a warehouse in Liverpool in the UK with fashion influencer Ben Gallagher. He's 24 and has built a multi-million dollar business on reselling designer items. And he's done so well because he's got a knack for telling the difference between a real luxury item and a fake. The colours, the tones. Do you know, if I was buying this from a shop, mm -hmm. I would have absolute... Like, if someone could sell me a fake, I would have no idea what I was dealing with. The two pairs of beige Balenciaga sneakers I've got in my hands look basically the same to me. I take a wild guess at which one's fake and I get it right. I think this is the real one. Mm-hmm. That's correct. But Ben reckons heaps of young people can't tell the difference. Yeah, some of them are really good. Like, it only takes, like, specialist authenticators to know that they are not a real product. So if you were walking down the street and you were wearing one, you wouldn't probably look twice at it. Research from the European Union shows nearly 30% of 15 to 24-year-olds have knowingly bought a counterfeit item. And Manchester influencer Sophie Hinton and her friend Ella Chandler reckon that reflects what they see on social media. So how much of those designer bags and items you'd be seeing out in Manchester are actually real? Very little. Very little, I'd imagine. I mean, yeah, it's hard to tell, isn't it, really? But I'd, I'd imagine it's quite a small amount. I feel like especially if you're in your teens or your 20s, who can actually afford those kind of items? They're expensive, and especially if you live in, like, Manchester life isn't cheap anymore. No, no one's earning enough money to go out and buy designer bags every month. <laughs> And even though traditionally people might have had to travel abroad to a big fakes hotspot like China or Turkey to get a good counterfeit, now they can do it from their couch at home. All the online places are very, very common and a lot cheaper. And um, you can get them within a week these days, week, ten yeah. days. And they have reviews online as well, so you can kind of, people will kind of say, this is good quality, this is not good quality, it's, you know, it's like for like the real ones, so. Manchester has become Europe's counterfeit capital. Here, a specialist police task force has uncovered a multi-million dollar designer fashion counterfeiting factory right in the heart of the city. Detective Chief Inspector Jen Kelly is one of the heads of the operation. We knew that the things were being imported um, and some were being manufactured locally, but we've realised it was on a much larger scale. The factory is filled with fake designer clothing piled high to the ceiling. They've got a street value of more than $1.5 million and were being sold all over the UK. You know, they've got quite sophisticated setups where they'll be selling stuff left, right and centre all that. That's Detective Superintendent Neil Blackwood, the head of the Specialist Police Unit. 
He says Manchester's counterfeit network is almost entirely run by organised crime groups who are using the profits from their crime to fund their operations. A normal area in Manchester might have two or three organised crime groups concerned in money laundering, drug supply, whatever. This had 33 just involved in this tiny area. I think the profits that were available made it really, really easy for them to thrive and exist. Counterfeiting is now one of the largest sources of criminal income worldwide. There are estimates of its value in the trillions. Money laundering investigator Elka Bihila says the money generated by these organised crime networks funds some of the most serious crimes, including human trafficking and terrorism. So we know Hezbollah has used it heavily and uh, first they sell uh, counterfeits and, and, and counterfeit fashion and then they buy weapons from it to make bombs and buy guns and ammunition and so on. We've seen it with IRA and uh, we've seen it with many other terrorist organisations. She wants people to really stop and think if they're keen on buying a fake. Think about what it took to get this product here to you in front of you and what will be done to the money that you have just given a criminal. Ben Gallagher agrees. I feel saddened at the fact most people don't understand how deep it actually is. There are alternative reasons as to what you can buy instead of fakes, whether that be pre-love luxury, whether that be a type of dupe from a shop that isn't ran by organised crime and feeds into other stuff. This is Hack on Triple J. Naomi Silveratnam there reporting with that story. The story was produced by Ellie Grounds. You can watch the full story on tonight's episode of Foreign Correspondent. That's on ABC TV. You can also catch it on ABC iView whenever you like. And messages still coming through on a lot of the stories that we've covered in this podcast. Someone saying, I'd rather know who is behind the recruiting and not just the target of the spying. That was someone talking about the spy politician story that's gripping Canberra. Another person talking about the alcohol study that found more young Australian women are drinking, doing drugs than ever before. They've said, look, the reason is life happened. We missed out on a couple of years during COVID. Young women have a short amount of time to experiment or achieve their career goals before potentially starting a family. We're cramming a lot in and it's stressful. Hey, that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack.